The following message is entitled, Proven Faith, Not Seeing is Believing, Part 2. This message was given during the evening service on March 19, 2023, at the Eastside Bible Church in Chicago, Illinois, by Pastor John Stevens. We're in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 8. It is a continuance of the previous two verses. As you can see, in 1 Peter 1, 8, it starts with the word and, the conjunction. So it's a direct connection. And what we've learned in your outline, which is very small at the top, it's not complex at this point because my outlines expand as I go into each Roman numeral, and then when I finish them, it goes back to the main Roman numeral. So you can see at the top, the outline's very small because I finished Roman numeral 1. Christians are to be joyful despite trials, and I finished Roman numeral 2. Christians are to be joyful while suffering for Christ as proof of saving faith. And we're now coming to verse 8, following your text. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Number one in your note sheet, Peter now continues this theme of proven faith and suffering and joy, keeping one's mind on eternity by next drawing us back, drawing us back to earth and here and now in verse 8. He took us to the heights of our hope at the end of verse 7, at the revelation of Jesus Christ telling us as we suffer and are tested by fire in verse 7, to put our minds on the revelation of Jesus Christ. And now he draws us back to current living in verse 8. From the revelation of Jesus Christ to do not see him now in verse 8. Number 2. Love and faith are the centerpieces of verse 8. Love and faith are the two absolutely critical ingredients. You can see them in verse 8. Though you do not see him, though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but have faith, believe in him. So point two, love and faith are the absolutely critical ingredients to the Christian life if one is going to sustain long-term joy while suffering in this life. Love and faith are the two absolutely critical ingredients to the Christian life if one is going to sustain long-term joy while suffering in this life. What does that mean? Peter is counseling us in verse 9. You and I aren't going to make it through suffering under number 2. You're not going to make it through Christian suffering unless you're growing in love with him and growing in faith. They're partners of joy. Joy, love, faith. Partners. If I don't have joy, then I don't love the Lord and I'm not trusting him. We need all of these. These are things we should be praying for. Increase my joy and my salvation while suffering. Help my love for you to grow. Help my faith for you to, in you to grow. 1 John chapter 5. We can see one of the proofs of love for Jesus Christ in verse 2 of 1 John 5. 1 John chapter 5, verse 2. I think I said verse John 2, verse 5. Please forgive me. 1 John 5, verse 2. 
By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God. Notice they go together. Love for the children of God, love for God. If I don't love the body of Christ, I don't love the Lord. Can't love God and not love the body. So all these Christians that I've been talking about in Sunday school who have abandoned church uh, during the plague, as I mentioned last Sunday in Sunday school lesson, and uh, think that they don't need to fellowship with believers, they don't love God. They think they do. You can't have, the, the Christianity is not a personal religion. It's a corporate body life faith in the Bible. We love God, and here's how we know that we do. We observe his commandments. What does that mean? We study them. We know them. But it doesn't stop there. Verse 3, for this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. So we observe and keep. And his commandments are not burdensome. This is how we overcome the world's temptations in verse 4. One of the major ways is we have to love the Lord and love his word and keep them, and then this will help us to overcome. Nikao in verse 4 from Nike. Gym shoes, Nike, conqueror. Nikao, we're the conquerors, spiritual conquerors. The verb implies a battle overcoming there in verse 4. Um, only continuous love and faith growing um, is, are going to have this type of overcoming Resistance of suffering and temptation in this world. So you can see, just like 1 Peter 1.8 that has love and faith, notice now this text does as well. John, you get love mentioned in verses 2 and 3, and then what overcomes the world in verse 4 is what? Last two words of verse 4 are what? There you go. Love and faith. Love and faith. Go back to 1 Peter 1. Number 3. In the note sheet, next to Judas, Peter was the one disciple who exhibited the most serious breach of faith in the Lord. Most serious breach of faith in the Lord. It's a great study comparing Judas to Peter. I think John MacArthur has a sermon on this, if I remember right. What's the difference between Judas and Peter? They both denied the Lord uh, in a sort of apostasy. Um... Peter's denial was out of fear. Judas's was out of unbelief, but uh, they track the same in certain respects. Obviously, Judas was unsaved. Peter is not. There was remorse for Judas when he threw the money back that was offered to him, and then, of course, Peter went and wept. So it is possible to backslide and to look like an apostate. Certainly can't be growing, but then there is a quick quick rebound for the true believer. They fall into despair and in full repentance, as Peter did. So, Peter had a major breach in his life, obviously, when confronted in the garden by the fire, by individuals who were accusing him of being part of Christ's disciples, and he denied it severely three times. He didn't belong. And uh, as a result, Christ had to severely admonish him. John 21, uh, you can't get away with that type of public denial. It's got to be dealt with, and Christ dealt with it in John 21 directly, confronted him on this, that someone like Peter, who went under pressure, renounces any connection to Jesus, is going to face some consequences. And he's confronted in John 21 to bring him to the end of himself once again. 
He did wep, he did go out and weep, but uh, he's not quite over his problem. Uh, John 21, verse 12, John 21, verse 12, Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples ventured to question him, who are you, knowing that it was the Lord. And John MacArthur always makes a funny statement about verse 12. How does the Son of God make breakfast? Breakfast. <laughs> So he does it. Verse 13, Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them and the fish likewise. This is now the third time that Jesus was manifested to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. So when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, it, it doesn't seem like this is private. They're sitting around the fire and Jesus turns on Simon Peter. Why him? Because he denied the Lord three times and so the Lord is going to confront him three times. Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Which is interesting. Because Jesus says, Do you agape me? And he drops it down to, You know that I phileo you. So he wasn't willing to say fully unconditional love. At least Peter was smart that way. And he says to him, tend my lambs, not make them. That's a very important point. We're to tend them, we're to feed them. Um, we don't make converts, okay? They're the lambs of the God of the Bible, the lambs of Jesus. He's the one that converts. Verse 16, he said to him again a second time, Simon, son of John, do you agape me? And he said, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Second time, second denial is confronted. So he said to them, shepherd my sheep. Poineo, lead them, govern them, guard and guide them. Present active imperative, he's telling them to shepherd them. He's moved them from feeding and tending to shepherding. Not done. He denied him three times, so Jesus a third time. He said to, just, to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you phileo me? Feelings of emotion. Christ drops the type of love and questions even if he has good feelings. And this grieved Peter because he said to him the third time, do you phileo me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. Now he appeals to his sovereignty. He's not so brazen as in verse one, as in verse 15. Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He's humbled once again in verse 17. And he realizes now that the Lord sees his heart it's very easy to claim to love the Lord. The Lord knows whether we do or not. We should never say that we love the Lord when we aren't obedient to his word. That, that's foolish. Yeah, that's just foolish. We don't say, Lord, please forgive me for my sins, but you know that I love you. Don't do that. Don't, please. God sees the heart. So he's questioning even if he has filial love, phileo. It's where... Greek and Latin into English, Philadelphia, the city of love, philos. Three types of love in the New Testament, agape, the highest level, the love of the will. No matter what, I will give my life for you. Phileo, which is a love of feelings. I have good feelings towards you. We many times mistake feelings of love towards Jesus as an evidence that we have great agape love. It's not necessarily the case. Do you ever notice sometimes you in prayer have great emotions and you repent of sin? Oh, God, please forgive me. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I love you, and I'll try to do better. And then five minutes later, you do the same sin. Anybody ever had that happen? Yeah. All that speaks to is that you were experiencing philos love, not agape love. 
And we really aren't obedient until we get to 1 John 5, where agape is the issue. So um, many times the Lord hears our attestations, our statements of love to him. And we think it's agape. We think it's a love of great unconditional love of my heart and mind to the Lord, when really the Lord is seeing phileo. And phileo comes and goes. That's why we can have feelings towards Jesus and then turn around and sin. So Peter was grieved because he said to him, do you phileo me? So now he's reduced it to, do you even love me at all? Because there's only three loves in the New Testament. Agape, love of the mind, phileo, the love of the passions and feelings of love towards God. And then eros, erotic, that's sexual love, and that's not on the table here, obviously. So when Jesus questions agape, Peter says, I have phileo. I'm not going to be stupid enough to say I have agape. And then Jesus drops it down to the basement of love and says, do you even phileo me? And he says, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And he says, just like, read my mind. Read my mind. So he says to him, tend my sheep. This is three times restoration. There are consequences for what Peter did. He, this isn't, Christ isn't done with Peter here. We think, okay, he becomes an apostle, writes First Peter, we're learning from him in verse 8. It's all done. It's not all done. There are consequences for what Peter did. He needs to face the music, and the consequences are laid out for him quite starkly in verse 18. Truly, truly, it's double repetition. The old King James is verily, verily. I'm telling you truth. I am telling you this truth. Wake up, Peter. When you were younger, so he's obviously not young, probably middle age at this point, you used to gird yourself. That's where you, the girding of the Roman tunic is to hinge, cinch it up so you can strut and walk and fight. You girded yourself and walked wherever you wished. Out of my way! Peter was a tough fisherman. So he's middle-aged, not old yet, but when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands like this and someone else will gird your wrists and bring you where you do not wish to go. Even a godly apostle doesn't want to be crucified upside down. Okay? They didn't have halos over their head like the uh, Renaissance painters did of the apostles where they, you know, they, they look like this and... You know, they're above ethereal apostles. They could take anything. They didn't want to go. He didn't want to go there. He didn't want that to happen. Who would want to, want to suffocate, suffocate upside down like Mussolini did at the end of World War II when he was executed upside down? Italian dictator in league with Hitler. He doesn't want to go there. He doesn't want that. He's signifying what kind of death he would glorify God with. He would be dreading that the rest of his life rest of his life so he learned his lesson right peter was an easy learner he didn't uh, struggle with repeated sin like us wrong peter is so much like us or shall we say we're like him verse 19 now this he said signifying what kind of death he would glorify and when he had spoken this he said to him follow me so he said tend my lambs verse 15 shepherd my sheep Verse 16, tend my sheep, verse 17. He wants him to take on his apostolic position. And he says to him, follow me. Uh, I think that he changed it from tending to shepherding to following 
my conjecture on verse 19 is, uh, well, if, if the Lord stood in front of you at a fire and gave you verse 18, signifying the end of your life is not going to be a happy retirement in Cape Coral, but you're going to be bound and girded like this, and he knew exactly what that, he was going to die for the faith, taken to execution. I think that if any of us were in Peter's shoes, he'd be sitting at the fire right there and saying, <laughs> wow, hmm, maybe how can I get out of this? Because verse 19, he now increases this to personally not taking care of lambs and sheep, but he focuses in on, uh-uh, you, I'm commanding to follow me, regardless of what he just said in verse 18. Now, they're all sitting around the fireside, and if you were the others, you probably would have said at this point, oh, boy, did we dodge a bullet, huh? Or are we next? Peter, obviously, has not learned his lesson. This is so classic of all of us. When we were kids... And mom would dress me down, little Johnny, for being the rotten little chump that I was. We would notoriously in the Stevens home, I would say, well, what about Dave? What about Jewel? And look what Peter does. They probably were like this around the fire. say anything or we'll be called out too. He just predicted that Peter's going to be executed. Peter doesn't like this. Turning around. He, he, needs some, he needs a compadre in this. So the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, he turned around and looked at John, the one also that leaned back on his bosom at the supper and said, Lord, who is the one who betrays you? John's writing about himself in third person. So it's like this. Hey! What about him, Lord? What about this man? Who wants to have that happen to them? It seems unfair, right? Verse 18. Did the other disciples do what Peter did? Deny him three times? Did they do that? Judas doesn't count. He was an unbelieving, Satan-filled, demon-possessed, fake apostate. Seems harsh. He's been called out from verses... 15 all the way down. It's harsh because there are consequences for all of us, what we do. And Peter publicly denied Christ three times. I know not the man. But we squirm under severe admonishment. And so Peter does what is known in counseling as deflection in biblical counseling. And as I mentioned, we do it, we did it, we do it automatically as kids. What are you confronting me on, Mom? What about them? And he does that right here. What about this man? It's kind of insulting, isn't it? Instead of saying, what about my, my partner, my friend, my fellow apostle? What about John? And Jesus, in his enigmatic way, in his covering, only giving you enough information way, I want him to remain until I come. What is that to you? You follow me. So he gets rebuked another time. 
He's rebuked in verse 15, rebuked in verse 16, humiliated in verse 17, given a terrorizing glimpse into his future in verse 18. And now he dusts, Jesus dusts him off in verse 22. Why want him to remain? What is that to you? That's, that's, a, that's a Hebrew way of saying, an Aramaic way, a Jewish way of saying, none of your business. We're not to look around at anybody else, just ourselves. You follow me. So the deflection of Peter, he's being counseled, admonished, and he deflects the admonishment in verse 22. Peter's a hard learner, isn't he? We all are. We all are. Romans 6 tells us that we battle with what are known as besetting sins, enslavements. This doesn't justify our behavior. When we say that we're hard learners and that we struggle with repetitive sin over and over again, this doesn't mean it's okay. It isn't okay. He got lambasted here, didn't he? Probably has some acid reflux from eating that fish after what happened to him. Wow. You kind of think, if all we had was verse 21, I would view this as this way. Peter walked quietly into the night at this point. <laughs> That's the end of him. And this man, Peter... Still messing up in verse 21. Writes 1 Peter 1.8. The counselee in verse 21 who's under the table in humiliation before the other men in verse 21 who is so panicked to get the holy gaze of Christ, resurrected Christ off of him that he deflects the counsel to John and gets another admonishment for that, now walks into the counseling position years later in 1 Peter 1.8. Unbelievable. He didn't walk quietly into the night. He blasted back through repentance to take the reins of the church and teach us how to suffer. And even in 1 Peter 1.8, he still doesn't have John 21.18 fulfilled yet. He's at the end of his life when he's writing 1 Peter 1.8, not 1 John 1.8, excuse me. He's, he's, he's at the end of his life. It's coming. It's looming up to him. Always for years he had John 21.18 waiting for him. So much closer in verse 8 in 1 Peter 1. So much closer. And here he's broken. He zoomed way ahead of us from what about him to writing verse 8. As I said last Sunday night, this is biblical counseling extraordinaire for the suffering. He's moving now in from the fire of verse 7 to counseling we who suffer for the name. Number 4. In your note sheet, as I pointed out last Sunday night, Peter is becoming a biblical counselor for all believers who are suffering for Christ. This is an incredible verse. You see, you don't just tell someone they're going to suffer. A little insight from Peter here, who's now the master counselor, from carnal to counselor. Incredible. <laughs> the power of God and what he can do to a Christian's life to change them if we would simply let Christ have his way with us. From carnal 
John 21, the counselor. Wow. You don't, as a counselor, simply nail someone with the suffering that they're having for Christ and say you're going to suffer for Christ. You've got to give them provision in the midst of the persecution. He didn't go to Bible school, Peter, and he certainly didn't have neuthetic counseling, third-level courses on biblical counseling. But he nails it here. doesn't stop with the fire in verse 7. He moves into counseling. And it says, this is your priority. This is what you have to do now, knowing that you're going to suffer. Who is better qualified than him? He suffered with sin, denying Christ. He suffered post-resurrection around the fire, brutally, brutally targeted alone as the leader of the apostles at that point. The higher the level of leadership, the greater the admonishment. Didn't figure it out at all in John 21. But boy, has he suffered. And he's told us about the theology of suffering in verse 7. Now in number 4, he's giving us advice. Who better than Peter? I can't think of anyone better to be a biblical counsel, to get biblical counsel from. Who better than one who not only faced massive suffering and failure, but faces execution in the future? That's one I'd want to listen to, to equip me for suffering. Oh, yeah. Verse 8 is really interesting in the Greek. I'm going to read verse 8 as it reads literally in the Greek. It starts off with the word who. Verse 8. Not the word and in the Greek. Who not. Referring to us. Who not. Having ever seen you love. On whom, Jesus? Now. Not seeing now. Believing. But. You exalt with joy inexpressible and filled with glory. Verse 9. Receiving the outcome of the faith of you, the salvation of your souls. He's focusing in on the persons. Believers who are suffering. The theology of suffering. Proven faith is the subject. Proven faith in verses 6 and 7. Proven faith is joy in the midst of suffering. I'm telling you about faith. Now verse 8. Who is going to go through verses 6 and 7? First word is who in the Greek in verse 8. He now comes to the personal appropriation. Believers. Who not have seen. This is, this is not the way counseling goes today in the American Evangelical Church. So you just laid out a whole scenario of you're going to suffer miserably for the cause of Christ. You need to have joy. And this proves your faith. Um, who of us in this room would make our next step into personal provision and counseling? Who of us next would have on their ledger of what they want to say to this counselee? 
Uh, first thing we're going to talk about, now that you're suffering miserably and being fired up for your faith, um, first thing I want to talk to you about on my counseling list is um, you've never seen Jesus. Well, that X's out the entire charismatic section of so-called evangelicalism today. How many charismatics bank on the issue that they see Jesus every day? Peter will have none of that. Because he wants us to make sure in counseling a very important point. Your love for Jesus has nothing to do with seeing him. Okay? You love him having not seen him. And not seeing him, you have faith. He wants us to realize we can't have fake knockoff love, fake knockoff faith. We can't have counterfeit love, counterfeit faith that says, my Jesus walks with me and talks to me and I see him every day in the clouds and this is what makes me live for him. That's counterfeit. We've never seen him and never will until we're in heaven. This is speaking to the miraculous work of the Spirit who needs no pictures of Jesus in the sky. The Spirit of God entered into our sinful minds and transformed us through conversion in miraculously never hearing his voice and never seeing him. We love him deeply. That's a miracle. Why does it happen? Because faith comes by hearing and hearing by visions. Hearing by the word of God is his word that has transformed us in his word alone. That's why in 2 Peter 1, Peter comes along with a second volley of counseling and he says, basically, you need to understand something about the Christian life, Christians. In the midst of suffering in 2 Peter 1, the word of God is sufficient. Absolutely sufficient. You need nothing else. It's so sad. Julian and I, when we were in the house of those two that we led to the Lord, we find out very quickly that they don't want just the word, do they? They want to see Jesus. They need visions and dreams. And when we need that, we don't need the word. And if we don't, we had, if we don't need the word, we've got nothing. We've got nothing. Verse 8, not only destroys charismatic dreams and visions, Jesus talking to us, but it brings us back to the miracle of love and faith that is based simply on the Spirit opening our hearts to the Word of God. So no, a modern-day biblical counselor wouldn't start off with, you haven't seen Jesus. Who would do that? Peter. Peter, back in when he denied in Gospel of John, he was hanging around Jesus for three years. Physically, right? Day in and day out, 24-7, right? Still denied him. Remember when he was in the garden and he denied the third time and he looked over and he, I guess he could see into the court and Jesus looked at him, remember that? And when he saw Jesus, he fled and wept. Seeing Jesus didn't help him, did it? 
hanging around him physically for three years. The, the tragedy of false Christianity today is if I could just sit down and talk to my Savior and see him, I would be all right. Lie. Peter would say, I hung out with him and I saw him from the court and a little girl accused me and it made me recant. There has to be a connection there in verse 8. It has to, this has to be what he's thinking. I, I hung around him. I saw him. You do not see him. He doesn't say we have not seen him. He had seen him. Jesus is in heaven now, as of verse 8. So that's why your text, textual note here at the bottom of the note sheet that we'll close with is it's extremely important. You cannot ever divorce John 21, 15 to 22 from Peter's denial of Christ three times. You can't divorce that passage with Peter's denial of Christ three times from 1 Peter 1.8. You can't divorce them. You can't. He denied, he's confronted, and this has to be what Peter is drawing up for us in verse 8. Look how I failed in the midst of suffering when I saw and lived with Jesus. You do not see him. The sufficiency you have is greater than what I had, Peter would be saying. You have the resident Holy Spirit living within you and the word of God complete. You can't divorce John 21, 15 to 22 from Peter's denial of Christ three times and you can't, underneath that, you can't divorce that passage from 1 Peter 1. You don't need to see Jesus and neither do I and we're going to focus on that and understand this. So what this means is this, finally tonight, at the bottom of your note sheet. In verses 8 and 9, Peter is showing us the superiority of the Christian faith. Believing sight unseen. Don't you and I feel like the have-nots surrounded by charismatic evangelicalism? Sure we do. They will say to us, I see him, I hear him, he talks to me. What do you have? Oh, well, well I, I, just, I just have the Bible. Ha! That's why they're pouring out of fundamentalism into charismatic, the charismatic movement, because the Bible is not enough. By its very nature, charismatic theology is a renunciation of the sufficiency of the word of God. Doctrine of subsequence is a renunciation of the sufficiency of the word of God. It's subsequent to conversion. After you've been converted, you need something more. You need the baptism of the Spirit. You need to speak miraculous tongues. You need to have visions, dreams. The word of God is not enough. What an attack. Peter is pointing out to us in verse 8, Hey, you have not seen him, and you love and have faith. That's superior. If you only love a family member when they visit you, what good is that? So when they leave, you never talk to them, you never write them, you never think about them, and you never pray for them. But when that family member is gone, your real love is shown by the longer that family member is away from you, 
the more you love that person. I was saved at age five, sight unseen of Jesus Christ. And I've never seen my Lord and Savior. I've never heard his voice. I would never want to be young again because he has given me conversion and a heart to love him inconsistently, not very well. But all these years, 57 years, never once saw him or heard his voice. And yet, I'm still waiting to see him. It makes the taste of seeing him in the future so sweet. That I've held out all this time without his voice and without a vision of him. He's kept me in love and faith so superior. I will not bow my head before a charismatic anywhere on this planet who poo-poos the sufficiency of the word of God, I will say it is superior to love someone and have faith in one who is your savior that you've never seen. It's easy to love someone right next to you. The evidence of real love for our loved ones is if we never see them again, we still love them greatly and we grow in that love. That's real love. Absence is supposed to make the heart grow fonder, but it doesn't work. We can see it in marriages where there's divorce and separation. Once they are apart, the love grows cold. Christians who drop out of church, our love for them, their love for us grows cold. That's the real reality of humanity. Whoever wrote absence makes the love grow fonder. That's not true. You separate from somebody, the love dies. Unless you have extraordinary, unconditional love for that person. And Peter is driving that home. We love him. We have faith in him in verse 8. We have great joy. This is miraculous. We love someone we never said goodbye to. We never saw them physically to begin with. To begin with, We never saw Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We still don't hear the Holy Spirit in our minds. We believe it by faith. We don't see Jesus. So what this means is that Peter is laying out for us what charismatics would deny. The superiority of biblical Christianity is growing love, growing faith, growing joy with no miraculous view of God. None. We write everything on the book. This is what shows us our Savior. This is fully and 100% sufficient. I need nothing and no one else. And I will grow by God's grace in love and faith in my Savior, never seeing and hearing his voice. I will not renounce the high standing of love and faith, sight unseen, for the false, cheap, heretical ripoff of a faith that only survives by a false pretense to see Jesus in the clouds. And hear his voice in our heads. My God is powerfully and miraculously transforming me without any vision of him and without hearing his voice. That is a far greater miracle. And I am so thankful for that. So Peter saw him and failed. Lived with him and failed. Gets admonished repeatedly in John 21 and he still failed. Deflects to John tired of the admonishment. And now he's learned his lesson. Even though he saw Jesus, he's telling us, 
You will love and have faith, and you do without seeing him. And he can rest assured for us that you would not be living a superior Christian life if you saw Jesus and walked with Jesus right now physically. It would not be superior. By his testimony, he failed. Hanging around Jesus for three years, failed. We have everything we need to live the Christian life. Holy Spirit, Word of God, fellowship of believers. And that's a miracle. So when you lay your head down tonight, if you long and wish that Jesus would talk to you verbally, shame on you and me. The miracle is he's producing all of this without ever talking, without ever showing himself. That is miraculous faith. And one day we will see him. And we'll see him as he is. And he'll say, well done, good and faithful servant, because we will enter into the joy of the master, having down here never seen him, never hearing him, living for him. There is such great reward in that. What a counselor Peter is, dear Lord. He has experienced it all. He saw you and walked with you and talked to you, Jesus. And he's with you right now. And we're studying your servant Peter's words. And he's telling us as bluntly as you talked to him in John 21 around the fire post-resurrection. As you laid him out to dry, you are laying us out through Peter. Peter is giving us the what for. He's purposely brought into the equation the issue of visions and sightings of God to show us that this is bogus. He's doing it as the inspired apostle that he was, Jesus, to teach us a very hard lesson we don't want to learn. That we have everything to live for you, the Spirit. And the word and the church. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.